0: Hello! Now, on Patreon, if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, you'll be able to access extended episodes, you'll be able to put yourself in the running for a box of books, a prize, which is a box of books, is a tongue twister. You can put yourself in the running for that. And the odds are actually very good. Yeah. Because we give one away all the time. (laughs) There's also bonus episodes, but at the same time, please don't feel obliged to support us on Patreon. You know, there's lots of free content. Also, if you do support us on Patreon, don't worry that it's going to rack up to lots of money because there's going to be free content for you as well. And yeah, it works out very reasonably priced.
1: And it's going to be a maximum of, of three episodes that you would pay for per month. Generally, now we're going to be fortnightly, but... We're going to have still uh, shows popping up in between mm. as well, which will all be free. Whether you're a patron supporter or
0: not, it's much cheaper than BT Sport. <laughs>
1: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles without Josie, uh, Book Shambles Extra. Uh, And uh, this is uh, a a discussion about sleep and dreams. I have in my hand Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, and I have to the right of me Matthew Walker. And this is a book that fascinates me immediately because uh, as someone who has had some erratic sleep patterns, Mm. uh, our understanding of sleep as human beings... I mean, the first question... Uh, I suppose we still, whenever I've I've done shows where people have brought up the idea of sleep, evolution-wise, it seems that no one can come up with a nice, crisp, ultimate answer of why we sleep. It seems logical until you go, why would this be programmed into a creature? Why wouldn't a creature (laughs) spend its entire time awake? This seems to be an evolutionary advantage to be aware. It does, doesn't it? It If you were to think about it from an evolutionary perspective, sleep is the most
2: stupid thing that you could have evolved. Firstly, you're not finding a mate, you're not finding food, you're not reproducing, you're not socializing, and we are a social species, of course, mammals. And fifth, you're vulnerable to predation when you sleep. On any one of those grounds, sleep should have been strongly selected against. Mm. On all of them put together, if Sleep does not serve an absolutely vital set of functions. It's the biggest mistake the evolutionary process ever made. And what we've discovered is that it didn't make a grand mistake. Sleep is Mother Nature's best effort yet at contra-death. It is the elixir of life. What we've discovered, I mean, 20 years ago, you're very right in stating that. We would ask the question, what is sleep good for? And there were a few theories around, but no one could give you a consensus answer. Now, 20 years later, based on hundreds of thousands of scientific studies, we have been forced to upend the question. We've been forced to ask, is there anything, brain or body, that sleep doesn't beneficially support when we get enough, or that demonstrably implodes with dysfunction when we don't? And the answer is no every major system within the brain and the body are enhanced by way of sleep. So now we realise it was a fool's gold, the way we were asking the question, because we assumed there was a single function of sleep. And we went in search of it, this holy
1: grail of sleep function, which is odd. Because I think I remember in Dragons of Eden, Carl Sagan's uh, book about book. I think yeah. at that point he... He particularly went with the idea that it was uh, avoidance of predators, those that uh, mm-hmm. had uh, the abilities of night vision, that it was therefore an advantage for mammals such as us to be Withdraw still. Yeah. Yeah, Withdraw and, and be still, yeah. So could you run through a few of the, the, the different ideas over, over the last kind of, I, I suppose, over really, over the 20th century and into this century? What, what were the viewpoints and what was perhaps the most, uh, what looking back now becomes a bizarre view of the necessity of sleep? I think
2: one of the most bizarre that I've read that I'm particularly fond of um, was that it was a time for eyeball oxygenation. (laughs) And you think, well, hang on a second, what's going on? There is a stage of sleep called rapid eye movement sleep, and it's dream sleep. And it gets its name REM sleep, not from the popular Michael Stipe pop band, but because of what happens, which is that you get these darting rapid eye movements underneath the closed lids. And it turns out that your eyeballs actually do need to move for the sort of aqueous humor inside to stay oxygenated and people thought well perhaps that type of sleep is necessary to keep your eyeballs oxygenated because during the other type of sleep, what we call non-rapid eye movement sleep or deep sleep, Mm -hmm. um, there your eyes rest still. So that was one wacky theory for why we have at least one type of sleep which is dream sleep. But stepping back to your question, more generally, what were the theories of of sleep? One of them was this notion that sleep is simply a time when we conserve energy. Um, And it's good because we lie down. And if we were to be active for 24 hours, it would be so metabolically costly, we couldn't sustain it. That now is deeply untrue. Because your brain is almost as metabolically active during sleep as it is during wake. And during dream sleep, some parts of your brain are up to 30% more active than when you're awake. So you actually only save a small sort of sample of calories by way of sleeping versus, for example, just lying on the couch, but remaining awake. That would be the control condition to say, don't lose consciousness. You can lie still, but losing consciousness seems like a really bad idea. And for that energy theory to work out, there must be something especially beneficial about losing Mm. consciousness. And there isn't anything calorically, dramatically different when you're lying still with your eyes closed but awake versus asleep. They're essentially calorically identical, metabolically. So that idea that we conserve energy is utterly wrong Um, there is some interesting data suggesting that it's useful in an environment where there are multiple species for you to share that eco sort of niche that you've got and taking people on and offline based on their physiology are they light-based vision driven or are they sort of you know sound bats being a good example echolocation that's how they get around Um, And there's some relevance to that, but if you look at that as a predictor of who sleeps and how much they sleep, there's no significant relationship. So that doesn't seem to be the defining factor of who sleeps and how much sleep that they get. And in fact, one of the difficult things has been to find out what the magic ingredient that determines what is a dramatic amount of variability in sleep across phylogeny. So elephants sleep very little, and giraffes do. They sleep maybe just three, four hours a day. The little brown bat is the hero of my field. They sleep almost 18 hours a day. And we should sleep somewhere between uh, seven to nine hours a day. And there's everything in between across the animal kingdom. What is the single thing you imagine that pops out when you load up all of these possible contenders? Prey versus predator, metabolic rate, um, your um, brain-to-body mass size, let's say. Uh, Are you social? Are you non-social? Are you herbivore, carnivore? Let's throw all of those into a big statistical model and say who wins out to predict who sleeps the most and who sleeps the least. And the answer is none of them do. There is no one magic bullet that we've been able to find that clearly says, I, I am going to determine across the animal kingdom how much people sleep. Instead, it's actually a small um, fraction of each one of those that when you add them together, collectively they can predict how much sleep we see across the animal kingdom. It's not one factor it's many factors.
1: So, is this another example? It seems that in this century in particular, there's the 20th century, and I might be wrong here, this might be merely anecdotal, but we often go, there must be one answer in that's science right. in a lot of different fields. And then in the 21st century, we've reached the stage of, going, of accepting it's complicated. The idea of the, the, the desire to go, and that's why we sleep, and <laughs> that's why we eat this, and that's why we find this toxic and all that. In fact, it is very hard to come down with that nice, neat, in the same way, I suppose, when you say, you know, what is life? And we still, after all these years, go, well, that's not bad, isn't it? But that's quite good example. And it becomes very... So is that what we're seeing here, is we're, we're accepting, certainly in the biological world, that whereas in physics we might like to go, and thus we have this one equation, and this is summed mm-hmm. up with this behaviour. With biology, it's going to be much harder to go, we found the one equation that says Sleep. It is, and it's complex for two
2: reasons. Although I say complex, I actually would say it just makes sense for two reasons. Firstly, you know, we're awake for two-thirds of our life, and we don't just achieve one thing, one function during that two-thirds of our waking life. Why would the same logic not also apply to the one-third of our life that we spend sleeping? In other words, sleep serves a whole constellation of functions plural. And that's been, I think, the first radical change in scientific view over the past 20 years. There is not one singular function of sleep. Is there a single pressure all the way back in evolution that created this thing that we call sleep? That's possible. But that's a very different question than saying now, all of these millions of years later, what are the functions, what are the reasons? this sort of you know finger buffet of wonderful health and brain benefits that we get from sleep. That's a very different question.
1: So it's the eye when we go with the initial light-sensitive cells may well have been yes. just to get out of the sunlight, light and shade. But it's again, it's become complicated now. We've yeah. moved on from that. The eye serves multiple
2: different functions in humans, it turns out. It's not just for vision. It does lots of other things too. And the same is true for sleep. So that logic that we actually have now multiple reasons why we sleep, I think has been great to embrace. I think the other difficult thing when you approach it from the sort of evolutionary cross phylogeny across species kind of way, I think the danger is that people assume that sleep serves the same function or at least at the same degree of dominance for every species. And that's not true either. Think about wakefulness. Wakefulness is for certain things in some species, and it's for different things in other species. So if you are a non-social species, wakefulness isn't about serving the function of being social. Hmm. So you could say, well, so therefore, there's something wrong with that, that particular species because wakefulness is not helping it be social. So it's dysfunctional. No, it's just that that species isn't necessarily a social species but being awake is still
1: adaptive for that species it's just that wakefulness does different things for that species you you were saying about the in in terms of during sleep uh different species have different brain activity that there's uh the the idea before we're talking uh before this recording but the fact that for instance some species seem to they're, they're, they are very complex in their behavior of going, there will be outliers that must remain awake within the shoal, or you have other species where it goes, right, the right hemisphere can go down now, but the left hemisphere has set. Now that's a very, again, how do we research that? How do, how do we understand with these, the, the complexity of that brain behavior? Yeah, and so I think I, the, the point I would also make, by the way, from that sort of evolutionary
2: point, is that every species that we've studied to date sleeps. And what that means is that sleep evolved with life itself on this planet. That's what it must mean. And furthermore, that sleep has fought its way through heroically every step along the evolutionary pathway from that point forward. Which to me, is, I just find utterly fascinating. Um, but I think your question is, is, is great too, because there are some species that, for example, will sleep with half a brain. So aquatic mammals, dolphins are great example, examples of this. As they're moving, they still need to sleep. Now, they only have what we call non-rapid eye movement sleep. They don't have rapid eye movement sleep or dream sleep. They only have non-rapid eye movement sleep. That's one of the other differences across species. Some Every species has non-REM sleep. REM sleep evolved later in time if there is a new kid on the block it's dream sleep dream sleep came later we only observe dream sleep REM sleep in fish um sorry in birds and mammals in amphibians fish and reptiles we don't see true REM sleep
1: so levels as levels of consciousness increase would that be, I'm thinking of the intelligence of birds, for instance, would, would that have any link to it it's in possible. terms of experience? It's a great point.
2: And it's a theory that I outline in the book that perhaps REM sleep actually was a critical instigator in the evolution of us, a socio-emotionally intelligent species, because that's one of the things that dream sleep does very well. It recalibrates your emotional brain so that you can make smart emotional decisions, you can read emotional expressions in others, and it fosters pro-social cooperation. So if there is something that was wonderful about dream sleep, it was promoting a social nature to species. And sociality
1: is part of the, the equation
2: that got us to dominance, it turns
1: out. And then with dolphins, which is because they're a social species. So that's interesting. What, what is the cost of their lack of REM sleep then?
2: Well, in some ways, they're, they're social, but they're, they're social in a very sort of nuclear way. You know, their entire set of species, they don't socialize in the same way that we have that high degree of social complexity. Um, but what's fascinating coming back to the, the half-brain sleep is that you would think, well, surely if, if it was so sort of essential for the dolphin to be able to resurface and breathe, which it is, otherwise it will die, surely in this species you can just do away with that thing called sleep. Just figure out a way to get around it for this one you know, outlier circumstance. And Mother Nature hasn't. It has found an incredibly complex solution where the neural wiring, which is immense, to allow one half of the brain to be wide awake and the other to be separate and in deep sound sleep, the type of evolutionary neural architecture required to pull off that trick is spectacular. And that's the length to which Mother Nature will go so that you still get this thing called sleep. That tells me how essential sleep is. If it will go to those lengths to still get it, even though you would think, surely it must be just easier to let go of it. Just get rid of it, it's fine. No, it's so non-negotiable, it's so life essential that it will create all of these bizarre methods for
1: getting it just move a bit because we're talking a little bit about dreams that again throughout the 20th century it seems the function of dreams there have been people who have had you know there is the idea that you are rehearsing in your dreams for possible scenarios and all those dreams where you're running away from things a little red. then there are the fact that you're dealing with things which cannot be spoken and therefore they happen in the night (laughs) time then there's you know other people who are saying it's just kind of just spewing out junk it's just so again i presume this may well be an answer where it's complicated comes in but in, in the study of, of dreams, what are currently the strongest ideas for the function of having these strange fractured narratives in our, in our sleep time? So, so, you know, the dominant, uh, I think, theory that still casts
2: a looming shadow is that of Freud's, obviously, which is this idea of wish fulfilment. And Freud had this idea that we had these repressed wishes... And if they were to bubble up into our conscious mind naked and raw as we were sleeping, they would be so disturbing that they would wake us up. And we need to be asleep. He understood the importance of sleep. And so instead, the brain has a sensor and those sort of raw wishes get pushed through the filter and distorted and come out encrypted on the other side. And that's what we call the manifest content, which is what you actually dream. But if... Freud believed he understood the algorithm of dreaming, he understood the sensor, and he could reverse engineer your dreams, decrypt them, and bring them back to the raw state, which was sort of what we call the latent content. That was his theory, the latent content and the manifest content. And by interpreting that, you know, he could make some great money from some very uh, rich Viennese women, and... And he thought that he had the keys to the the dream code, that he understood the da Vinci code of dreaming, essentially. And his theory was grounded in the notion that not only do we have these repressed wishes, but we had day residue, he coined the phrase, that we perhaps have this replay of the day's events. Now, the scientific studies have been done, and that's not at all true if you actually either record people's waking 16 hours with a a dash cam on the head or you just give them a little pager or a text message now in this day and age and you just sort of ping them throughout the day and you just say tell me what's going on and you build up this sort of truthful narrative of that day's experience and then you go searching into their dreams at night you bring them into the laboratory you record all of their dreams and then you see how much of that waking life has been bleeding through like a red thread narrative into their dreaming life? Is it, just like Freud said, a vast amount and we can see it? And the answer is no, it's about 1% to 2%, which is somewhere around statistical chance or far below it. Now that's not to say that your waking life doesn't have a profound influence on what you dream. It does, and this is the recent science of dreaming. What does come through loud and very strong from your waking life into your dreaming life is not just the rewinding of the videotape. Instead, it's the emotional themes and concerns of the prior day. Those are the things that you can't avoid. Those are the things that you see clearly coming up into dreams. And one of the recent discoveries, and we've done a lot of work in my own laboratory on this, is that dream sleep provides a form of overnight therapy. It's about emotional resolution. And I think many of us have this feeling of, I mean, it's that classic phrase where they say, look, don't worry about it, I know it feels bad today, but things will look different tomorrow, you'll feel better. And this has led to the erroneous term that time heals all wounds, and that's wrong, to a degree. It's not time that heals all wounds, It's time in dream sleep that heals all wounds. And we now know from the neurobiology and the neurochemistry of dream sleep that it provides the optimal neurochemical environment for taking those emotional memories and experiences of the prior day. And it acts like a nocturnal soothing balm at night. And it just takes the sharp edges off those experiences. And essentially, it divorces the emotion from the memory, Hmm. from the experience. So what you wake up with the next day, it's not as though you're amnesic. It's not as though you've forgotten. What was emotional yesterday is usually salient and important to you, the organism, for your survival. That's what emotions in part do. They prioritize your memory systems. But to hold on to the emotional tone, that visceral charge long term is maladaptive because that's called a state of chronic anxiety. And what dream sleep does, it essentially sort of detoxes the emotion from the memory so that when you wake up tomorrow, yes, you can remember the event, but it is now a memory of an emotional event, but is no longer itself emotional. Does that make sense? You started off with an emotional memory. And when you relive it, you regurgitate that same visceral charge. But the next day, you can actually think about it, and it
1: doesn't feel so painful
2: anymore. And you've got
1: dream sleep to think about that. Or... See, I've, why is it that psychologists who write about dreams always have really amazing, you know, kind of Lynchian dreams? Whereas mine are predominantly bland. Mine are predominantly, oh, I must have been worried about that gig. That's why I had that dream about that gig going badly when my son was born. You dream about, why have I put my son in my bed and I've rolled over him? Whereas, you know, you read Jung and he's got God doing a great big shit on a cathedral. And, you know, I've never, God's never been in my, I've, I've never had, you know, that... And, no and, cathedrals and reading, for you, Robin. I'm reading, so no, sorry. No, there's uh, a bit of architecture, but there's never a God above <laughs> it. You know, an incontinent God. And yeah. I kind of I find that you know again, reading Freud and reading Jung, the, the the richness of the dreams. I wonder. Some people have said to me, William Burroughs, I know, wrote uh, well. In fact, that I think it was one of his last books was a publication of his dream diaries. And have you found that those who actively write about their dreams and report them, that that can perhaps seem to increase the narrative richness of ensuing dreams?
2: Well, we don't believe that it increases the narrative richness of them. It simply increases your capacity to recall them. And those two things are very different. It's not that probably the qualitative or quantitative nature of those who diary their dreams versus those who don't is actually any different but the capacity for you when you wake up in the morning to recall and gain access to those stored dream experiences is superior which may actually come with advantages we were not quite sure um, but it's certainly not going to lead to wondrous sort of defecation dreams on p- pristine architecture, <laughs> I, I don't think, To, to I'm Was sorry Basil to disappoint Cathedral, you.
1: Basel Cathedral, I never know how to pronounce what is it, B-A-S-E-L, what's that, is that? Basel. Basel Cathedral, that's the one that God smashed in Jung's dream. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um,
2: and, so I, I think it's... So I think the other thing that you you hit upon there is another function of dream sleep. So here's the sort of the plurality of functions of even just one stage of sleep. Dream sleep isn't just for emotional resolution, which it is very good for. Um, Dream sleep is also about creativity we've since learned. Now, your deep non-REM sleep is the time when you actually fixate all of the things that you've been learning. So during deep sleep, you essentially hit the save button on all of your new memories and you transfer it into long-term memory. But then it's during dream sleep, which by the way, comes after each non-REM cycle. So each REM cycle, each dream cycle always happens after your non-REM, your non-dreaming cycle, which makes sense. You sort of want to imprint and save what you've learned to begin with. Then comes along dream sleep, and what's that good for? Does it do anything for memory? Yes, it does, but it does something different. It then takes what you've recently learned and starts colliding it in this form of memory alchemy at night with all of your past back catalogue of autobiographical facts and experiences. And it starts to seek out distant and non obvious connections. And it starts to fuse things together that shouldn't normally go together when you're waking and rational. But when it does, offers marked advances in evolutionary fitness. What I'm describing is the biological basis of creativity. That's what we also realize dream sleep is good for. It
1: offers a threefold advantage in problem-solving capacity, for example. I don't know if this has any connection or not. I was thinking of patient H, you know, the, the guy who looked Was it. The, uh, was it his hippocampus? H-M. That was, uh, yeah, H-H-M. patient HM, that's yep. it. Yep. Um, he had no hippocampus. So I wondered if this has anything to do with what happens during sleep, which is just when he would be given a task to do, uh, say some kind of puzzle, when he would return the next day, he would have no memory of doing the puzzle, but he would actually have improved... And his ability would improve, though he had no conscious memory of ever doing it. So day after day, he would get better and better and better. Now, this might have nothing to it, but I wondered whether in terms of the memory that we see active in sleep, whether this would have any repercussions in our understanding of our unconscious collation of ideas. So it's actually remarkable there have been, there's
2: a complete, Real paucity of studies that have actually looked at the dreams of amnesic patients. Um, Now, they actually, the one study that was great is that they looked at not sort of late night dreaming, which is what happens during REM sleep. They looked at this first phase that we call hypnagogic dreams. so what we call sleep onset dreams. So I think we've all had that experience where, you know, you're just starting to drift off and you've got a very logical, rational thought. You think, okay, yes, I've got to go to sort of Penguin Random House tomorrow to stupid stupid sleep, what on earth? And you're thinking logically. And then all of a sudden, you start to have these delusional thoughts where you know you think, and then there's the the, the wine bottle that was sticking out of, of all of the you know the orifices of of the giraffe, and I couldn't quite. Your just wakes you up. You're definitely was, a Freudian. You know, yeah, yeah um, can yeah. you tell? <laughs> um, and so, and so they're called sleep onset dreams. Now they have been studied in patients without a hippocampus, and they still have those dreams. And the best way that we can reliably induce those dreams is to get people to play computer games, Tetris specifically. Mm. You get someone to play three hours of Tetris, they close their eyes, they fall asleep. What do you think that they see? They report seeing all of these shapes dropping down in front of their eyes. And you ask amnesic patients, you say, do you remember playing a computer game? They say, I, I, I'm sorry, I have this condition, I don't remember who you are and I don't remember playing. And they say, okay, tell me about what was just going through your mind just before we woke you up. And they will say, well, it was strange. They were like garden tiles, these kind of geometrical shapes. And they were just falling down. And I, I seem to have been rotating them. And I don't know why. And so they actually do have dreams, which tells us that for the, those sleep onset dreams, the hippocampus isn't necessary. Other parts of the brain that are intact must be transacting that type of dreaming. So the other way of coming around to that question, though, which I think is also interesting is not to look at people who have no memory but to actually look at those who have superior astronomical memories. And we've done some of this work, we've looked at these just these incredible mnemonicists, those people who just have almost photographic, eidetic memory, they just don't forget. And what we found there is not that they're hyper-creative and that's about REM sleep, that's about dream sleep. Instead, it's something different, it's that that deep non-REM sleep that's different in them and specifically when you go into deep non-REM sleep you get these huge powerful bursts of big brainwave activity but it's a very slow brainwave and that's why it's also called in my field slow wave sleep deep Mm -hmm. sleep is called slow wave sleep because of these huge undulating slow brainwaves but what rides on top of those deep, slow brain waves? This mantra chant that your cortex goes into, which is beautiful when you see it in the sleep laboratory, at the end of each one of those, it's festooned with this champagne core burst of electrical activity called a sleep spindle. So if you were to make a sound, and we've actually translated people's sleeping brainwaves into sounds, it's beautiful, and you can dance to the slow waves. They're that predictable and slow. And it sort of sounds like like breathing. But then riding on top of them, you get what sounds like a cat purring. So you should go... And that is a second brainwave of deep sleep called a sleep spindle. And sleep spindles are powerfully related to learning and memory we've now discovered. People who have astronomical superior memory have almost a 300% increase in the amount of these sleep spindles that they have, and we've got no idea why. But it is clear that their sleep... Now, the sleep quantity is about the same. If you look at them, they sleep about seven to eight hours, and you think, oh, so it's not sleep. Sleep's got nothing to do with it. That's not right. It's, a not, it's about the qualitative nature of their brainwaves rather than the quantitative nature of how much time it is that they're spending asleep. Their sleep quality is different to mortals like myself who will, you know, forget names within mm. seconds, <laughs> you know, uh, even though I get a solid eight hours routinely every night. Um, their sleep is different. And we're just starting to scratch that surface. So that's the only way I can really, I think, address your question scientifically about sort of the hippocampus and memory and learning is not looking at it when memory and anatomy associated with it is deficient but in the opposite direction when memory and the anatomy that
1: supports it is hugely potent the um, hypnagogic is uh, that's actually my f- that's the one thing i missed most when i uh, had insomnia yeah is that uh, that bit when you're on a plane like yesterday where just are so tired and you have three, and they're almost... They are like fireworks. They, it's, it's an explosion of a narrative that you then can't quite retrace exactly what it was, but you can see a face <laughs> and you can see... That's um, lucid dreaming. Now, some of my more uh, mushroom and hallucinogenic-friendly friends uh, are quite obsessed with the idea that they can control... Well, not obsessed, but they're very interested in the idea that they can control their dreams, that mm-hmm. they are able to make themselves do a... What is your opinion on uh, that? A bit, and what again? If that if that were a possibility, what would that say about the different kind of dream state that that is? Yeah, isn't that?
2: It's a great, great question. So, firstly, just to define it, lucid dreaming is simply um, when you become aware that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, and at that point, you would be defined as a lucid dreamer. But colloquially, lucid dreaming is used to suggest that you can control your dreams and what you dream volitionally. Um, Most of us can't do that. Uh, About 20% of the population seem to be lucid dreamers. Um, 80% aren't. And I'll return to that in just a second. But is there scientific proof of lucid dreaming? And it's actually been very difficult because how do you prove that someone is doing what they claim to have done by way of a verbal report when you can't prove what they claim to have done during the act itself itself? Because they're asleep (laughs) and you you can't get them to tell you what they're doing. But a German group did a beautiful experiment. I know it was a beautiful experiment because when I read it as a scientist, I was so jealous. (laughs) I thought, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. It was brilliant. And here's what they did to prove lucid dreaming beyond a shadow of a doubt. They got a group of lucid dreamers, claimed lucid dreamers, and they put them inside an MRI scanner and they were awake to begin with. And they said, okay, for 30 seconds I want you to clasp your left hand and then I want you to clasp your right hand and then clench your left hand and clench your right hand over and over again. And they would map inside the brain scanner which parts of the brain were active during left hand movement and right hand movement, left hand movement and right hand movement. So I knew the neural ground truth for you, Robin, in your brain what it looks like when you're moving your left hand. And I can see it physically, you're doing it, it's real. So then I had every person's ground truth map. Uh so now, here's the truth, go and prove it to me. So they let them go into a lucid state, and the only group of muscles, by the way, that doesn't undergo paralysis when you go into dream sleep, normally, when all of us dream, our brain paralyzes our body so the mind can dream safely, so that we don't act out our dreams. But there's one volitional muscle group that is spurred from the paralysis. It's the extraocular muscles that control your eyeball. And that's the reason that you can have those rapid eye movements. Every other muscle paralyzed. So the eyes are the only way that a lucid dreamer can communicate with the outside world. So we have electrodes on the eyes. And we know when the eyes are moving. And we give predefined instructions. And we say, when you become lucid, give me three flicks to the left. And we're looking inside the MRI room and we're watching the trace. And now they've given me three flicks to the left and I know they're lucid. And then I say, as soon as you gain lucidity, give me two upward eye movements to say, you're now moving your left hand in your dream. And then give me two downward eye movements to say, I'm now about to move my right hand. And then I code the MRI scans that are constantly going on into those sections where they've told me they're moving their left hand in the Mm -hmm. dream and they're moving their right hand in the dream, even though they, they are not moving their hand physically, of course, because they can't, because they're just as paralyzed as all the rest of us. And when you look at the results, what did they find? Truth. Those same parts of the brain that were lit up when they were physically moving their hand when they were awake, were the same parts that became active when they claimed that that's exactly what they were doing under their own volitional control while they were dreaming. The first scientific true proof that we have that lucid dreaming is real. And it was brilliant. So no longer was it the realm of the Freudian Mm. sort of, you know, mushroom sort of taking, you know, uh, substance smoking uh, groups. It had to be embraced scientifically, which then led to the question, if lucid dreaming is real... And possible, what's its possible function? Is there a benefit to lucid dreaming? Now, you could argue from the stats that I gave you that if 80% of Homo sapiens are not natural lucid dreamers, then it mustn't be adaptive. Because if it were so powerful, then all of us would be lucid dreamers, and we're not by nature. You can train it, but we're not. And that's one argument, but I think it's a false argument. Because that argument assumes that we've stopped evolving. Hmm. And we haven't. Maybe that 20% of people who are natural lucid dreamers are at the cutting edge of homo sapien evolution. And they are going to be the dominant species next if,
1: you know, Google and AI doesn't take us over. Oh, my friend Alistair is going to be so pleased about that. Uh, right, so <laughs> the, You're uh... welcome, Alistair, by the way, wherever you are out there. <laughs> yeah. um, there I, there's a large group of Northampton luc- lucid dreamers. You know who they are, <laughs> friend, and I, I will tell them all. The um, very... Br- I wanted to quickly talk about out-of-body experience because this is something that I uh, I suppose, when well, I, I should be more specific and say kind of things like people who have a sense that they have been taken away by aliens etc in their sleep and I don't know if this properly links or not but I remember talking to someone who I, when I was doing some rubber hand illusion stuff and mm. you know that, that that sense that the rubber hand is your own and I was fascinated by the, the researcher at Birmingham who said that uh, those people who for those who don't know, I'll, sorry, I'll explain a little bit for people listening basically what happens is you you hide uh one of your hands so you place it below a desk so it's your left hand on top of the desk is a rubber left hand uh the researcher will then stroke your hidden hand and the hand above it. and for i think it's about 80 percent of people from what i can gather uh if you, you you get a sense that you can feel that in the rubber hand not in the position of, of your hand yeah Uh, but if you do it in the opposite direction, so you stroke the rubber hand uh, downwards and the real hand upwards, the majority of people will get no sense that the sensation is in the rubber hand, but those people who do still strongly feel the sensation of the rubber hand apparently are more likely to also say they've experienced out-of-body events, which again places it all back in the mind. rather. Now, I want to say it's a very long preamble though. To that sense of those people who believe they have experienced during sleep some form of being taken away yeah that seems from some of the things i've read to have a link to their experience of sleep paralysis do how much do we know about this So it turns out that um, a
2: large proportion of so-called alien abductions are simply explained by this thing that you just described called sleep paralysis. So what I was telling you is that as we go into dream sleep, REM sleep, the brain paralyzes the body for a safety reason. And normally when we come out of dream sleep, simultaneously your brain will release your body from the incarceration of the paralysis and you're freed. And those two things, consciousness waking consciousness and the paralysis, the muscle paralysis um, usually go hand in hand. They walk and march together in beautiful lockstep. So at the moment you're starting to gain consciousness is the moment that you are given back your body in terms of volitional control and everything works well. Occasionally, however, one thing does not happen relative to the other. So you start to become conscious, but your brain has failed to release your body from the paralysis. So you are essentially locked into your body. Mm. And usually it is associated with a strong sense of emotional dread and fear. Perhaps quite rightly so because it's very rare that you are a waking conscious individual yet you can't have any you can't speak, you can't open your eyelids you can't shout, you can't move. That's a violation of normal sort of protocol. So no wonder it's associated with a state of anxiety and, and sort of emotional dread. And what's Striking is that almost all of those so-called alien abductions have descriptively a very strong overlap with what we call the sleep paralysis experience, which is to say that you feel anxious. You feel that there was someone or some presence in the room. You often say that they injected you with a paralyzing agent so you couldn't fight back, you couldn't move, you couldn't cry out. You know, when was the last time you heard on the news of an alien abduction happening in the middle of the day when everyone was around? You know, today, at, you know, midday in Trafalgar Square, you know, um, Jimmy from Liverpool was clearly abducted by aliens and everyone saw it. It was a shocking event. You know, no, the vast majority of them happen at night when you're alone in bed you, you are sort of locked into your body because of this injected paralyzing substance. You know, you get this sense of dread of another being in the room. It's just sleep paralysis. Um, you know, it's, it's no big surprise, by the way, that Hollywood, almost all alien visitations from E.T. to Close Encounters always happen at night. Mm. It's the night that we associate that
1: stuff with. That might be the alien shyness effect, though. That's possible. That's well, that's yeah.
2: true. I've heard that there is some reticence. Yeah. Uh, let's let's uh, not of the, dismiss yeah. the the coy. I, I will not. I, uh, Steven Spielberg would, yeah, lambaste me for
1: that. How uh, I'll ask you as final question. Yeah, yeah. it's Fine. The uh, the final question is just how has your sleep been affected by the fact that your work is is sleep. So firstly,
2: um, and crass as it may sound, I actually do give myself a non-negotiable eight-hour sleep opportunity every night. I know, I know that that sounds terrible, but if you knew what I did about the fundamental health disaster that is this thing called deficient sleep, you would prioritize sleep in your life the fact that it's linked to every major disease that is killing us in the developed world, causally so, from Alzheimer's to cancer, diabetes to cardiovascular disease. I don't want any of these things. And I'll often, when I give public lectures or talks, I'll start by saying, show of hands, who would like cancer and who would like Alzheimer's? And of course, no one raises their hands. And then I say, okay, um, by way of uh, a show of hands, how many people routinely get seven hours of sleep or less during the week? And almost the entire room lifts their hands. And I'll say, well, then there's a mismatch between those two.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think that that's, if only you, you knew, and that's why well, that was the principal motivation for writing the book. Because scientists like myself, I don't think had done a very good job at communicating the powerful knowledge that we have about science to the public. And it is now, I believe, the greatest public health challenge that we will face in the developed world in the 21st century, the sleep loss epidemic. And I felt the need to convey that. So on that need drives my own demand for an eight-hour non-negotiable opportunity. Um, Now, that's not to say that I always get a a solid night of sleep. There are nights when I don't. And, for example, I'm, uh, uh, despite... uh, Um, Having this accent, I actually have been living in America for the past um, 18 years. I'm in California and I flew in on Monday morning. So last night I had terrible, terrible sleep because of jet lag. And what's funny is that despite me prioritizing my sleep when I'm stable in the constant uh, sort of uh, time zone. What's awful is knowing about sleep when you can't get it. It is the worst thing. So last night I'm lying there. My, I, I can't fall asleep, and I know why. I know that my dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is not shutting down. I know that my histamine, you know, should start to rise. I know that my adenosine should be blocked. I know that my melatonin should be rising. I know that my occipital cortex... And at that point, you're dead in the water for the next two hours. You know, you've just become the Woody Allen neurotic of the yeah. sleep world. So, so you know, I. that is the only downside of... Of doing what I do is that on the nights when sleep is difficult to find I am the worst of all people because I know what should be happening and I know what's not happening and it makes it twice as bad (laughs) <laughs> Do
1: you, by the way, just in terms of thinking of the brain, Henry Marsh, the, the yes. neurosurgeon? There's that lovely line he said. With I always forget the name. Who's that guy? My struggle. He's done about ten volumes of this now. The uh, uh, writer who writes these very lengthy existential examinations of his own life, and he's it's no Nelson. Oh God, what's he? What's he called? Knausgaard, that's it. Knausgard. Uh he, um, he, he said to him once in an interview, he, he said, don't you ever feel a bit of a pity that you know, there's not something extra and magical around the brain, that it's just this physical thing? He had this great line where he said, you don't seem to realise it. upgrades matter. It doesn't downgrade hopes and dreams. I wondered how, yeah,
2: Do you, would you feel oh, that? Absolutely. You know, I, I will... When I look at people in my own sleep laboratory... And I see this incredible ballet of electrical patterns, that dance and the coordination of brain cells all uniting with this one voice, all crying out at the same time, all falling silent. It's the type of neural synchrony that you never see in, when we're awake. It's a beautiful thing, this thing called sleep. And I am awestruck every time I look at it in my laboratory. So the appreciation I have is so rich as a consequence, and I identify all of the benefits of sleep in my life, and it's lovely to get that. I mean, Richard Feynman, one of my great heroes, alongside Brian Cox, who's just a wonderful public communicator of science too, uh, as well he as He doesn't Co- know a thing, it's all fed into his ear, <laughs> by the British physicist Jim Al-Khalili. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm still going to remain a strong <laughs> Brian fan, but... Um, And Richard Feynman, who is one of his heroes, is is one of my heroes too. He was asked a question on a BBC documentary, I think, once. And it was the same kind of thing that you've championed, uh, Robin, a lot of the time, which is to say, just because you understand something, uh, you know, at a scientific level, doesn't mean that you're a reductionist and it removes the magic or the beauty of it. You can, And Richard Feynman said this about a flower. He had an mm. artist friend who said, look, you know, you look at a flower and you think about the chlorophyll. You know, you think about the, the, the sort of the solar sort of powering of those cells. And you think about sort of the energy, the metabolic changes, the neurochemical changes, the physical electrons going on. Well, you've just unromanticized yeah. the flower, haven't you? Congratulations. And he said, no, it's the opposite. I can still appreciate just the pure, raw beauty of the flower, just like you can. But in addition, I can understand the scientific beauty of its biology that lies within it. And to me, that's exactly what science does for us. It unlocks an an entirely new descriptive level of beauty, yet still preserving everything that's wonderful and magical and natural about beauty. They're not opposites. It doesn't subtract, it only adds. That <laughs> Thank you here. very much. Lovely way to end.
0: So, there's going to be, uh, if you enjoy the podcast and you've never seen uh, one of Robin's kind of celebratory shows before, I would really, really recommend it. This Christmas, or around this Christmas, uh, there's going to be a new Nine Lessons and Carols, which is a kind of non religious but non exclusive celebration of life and the world and finding things out and participating. What I love
1: is the way that you deliver that is very much how you see people doing a round of just a minute. Just (laughs) enough thought without the being. A break. uh, uh, Yeah. That is my Radio 4 skills. You are like a youthful Sheila Hancock. (laughs) Not that I'm saying Sheila Hancock's old.
0: He said it, Sheila. Go and get him. It's presented by the Cosmic Shambles Network and the tickets are on sale now and it's December 16th, 19th, 20th and 22nd at the Conway Hall in London which is a beautiful relic of a bygone intellectual past.
2: That it is. It is one of our favourite venues in London to do shows at. So tickets, yes, they are on sale now at cosmicshambles.com nine lessons, and that's nine spelt out N-I-N-E rather than the number nine lessons four nights of science and comedy and literature and music uh, lots of guests robin will be hosting each night and some of our guests include josie obviously uh, jim El helen chersky matt parker lucy green john luke roberts grace petrie holly mcnish selena godden lots lots
1: lots more so make sure you get your tickets now Cosmic Shambles Network has lots of other podcasts, blogs, videos, documentaries, all that kind of things, so you can check out uh, Science Shambles and uh, our short chaos of delight films and Speakeasy and lots of other bits and pieces, so go and have a look there. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. <laughs>